Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In a new season of Tectonic, people have a near religious belief in the coming of effectively a computer god. AI companies want to build machines more intelligent than humans. Should we be worried? This is going to perhaps lead to a new renaissance. It's an incredibly inhuman future, an explicitly joyless, anti-human kind of future. Subscribe now to a new season of Tectonic from the Financial Times. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's podcast is about the war in Gaza and the future of the wider Middle East. My guest is Emil Hokayem, Senior Fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies here in London. War and horror have returned to the Middle East. So what hope is left for a more stable and peaceful region? After a week of heavy fighting, Israeli troops have effectively severed Gaza in two, moving under cover of aerial bombardment. The Israeli ground invasion in Gaza is now well underway. Meanwhile, protests against Israeli action are taking place around the world. This was a recent demonstration in London. There's now a sense that several Western governments are gradually distancing themselves from the way Israel is conducting the war. That's partly because of concern about the humanitarian consequences. There are also fears about a wider war in the Middle East. Beyond that, politicians in the West, the region, Israel and Palestine itself are also beginning to think about the future. Once the war's over, is there any hope of a durable peace? I discussed all those questions with Emil Hokayem, but I began our discussion by asking him about Israel's strategy and what's happening on the ground in Gaza. So the Israeli effort seems to be driven by a clear objective at the moment, which is to split Gaza City from the rest of the Gaza Strip. So what we see is the IDF units driving south along the coast on some of the main arteries and then cutting north as well. And that will essentially isolate Gaza City from the rest of Gaza. And Gaza City is the largest urban area. It is heavily populated. It's also where, from our understanding of Israeli, American, other intelligence services, where Hamas has an extensive underground infrastructure. So I suspect that the Israelis are trying to split the battlefield, go after what is closest to their towns, their cities. It will matter because it will, over time, diminish Hamas rockets and Palestinian Islamic Jihad rockets into Israeli territory. It will put massive pressure there. And there's still a lot of civilians in the space, so expect some horrific moments. I think part of the Israeli calculus is that the pressure on Gaza City will then drive civilians to want to leave 
and Israel will create and will monitor corridors from Gaza City into the south where international pressure will lead to greater humanitarian assistance. Not that conditions in the south are great, they're just marginally better. So what we see at the moment is armored brigades, engineering units, and so on being deployed. We don't see that many infantry or special forces one. We don't have much footage and we don't have necessarily confirmation from the IEF or from Hamas about what's happening. But I think soon the nature of the fighting will change. Israel will have to rely a lot more on infantry units and the risk of civilian casualties will increase significantly then. And Israel says repeatedly that it intends to destroy Hamas. Is that a realistic goal? No. It is possible to envision a significantly, possibly mortally weakened Hamas as a military organization. You know, ultimately, Hamas relies on rockets, on tunnels, on a certain amount of fighters to exist. And that can be reduced through overwhelming force. Hamas as an idea, as an ideology, is unlikely to be gone from the scene anytime soon. It will morph into an insurgent force within Gaza. It has a base in the Palestinian population. This is not, you know, yes, it is an extremist group that has used gruesome violence, not just on October 7, but even before. But it is still less of an ISIS than it is a Viet Cong, for instance, movement. It does operate in fundamentally different ways from this jihadi monster that we saw. This is no excusing or justifying Hamas's own use of violence. It's just that it is different in nature as an organization. Do you think Hamas have an understanding of what their goals are now? You know, it's said, for example, that they wanted Israel to come in to draw them into a trap. But have they perhaps got more than they bargained for? What do you think they're thinking? I think from a Hamas perspective, October 7 was what one would call a catastrophic success. They went in, they thought that they would provoke Israel and get them to mount an operation into the Gaza Strip. They didn't realize that it necessarily would be a fight to the death, an existential battle. They're prepared, however. You know, they can rely on probably 30 to 40,000 fighters. But the real objective is and remains psychological and political. Ultimately, They want to continue firing rockets across Israel to remind the Israeli population at large that it is constantly under threat. I suspect, you know, they will justify large civilian casualties because it does create outrage across the Arab world. It does lead to discussions, very legitimate discussions about the humanitarian consequences of the IDF operation. And they will strive on that. They want to be seen no longer as a tier two militia group in the region. But I mean, Hamas has just graduated to the first tier alongside Hezbollah. Hamas leaders now can almost say they operate at the same level as Hassan Nasrallah, the secretary general of Hezbollah. And importantly, very importantly for Hamas, it's a time where they can shame the Palestinian authority and basically say, you know, while the others are sitting down and allowing this expansion of Israeli settlements and so on, we've done something about it. We can discuss what the outcome will be, whether it will be positive for Palestinian life, well-being, security, and so on. But I think Hamas has a way of rationalizing its losses and civilian losses that other movements will reject. And you said, you know, rather chillingly earlier that you think actually civilian casualties, which already were up to about 10,000 people, the UN says half of them children, 
that they're likely to get worse. And also that, to some extent, that suits Hamas. Do you think that there will be increasing pressure on Israel to desist from the West? Or do you think the scale of what happened October the 7th gives them more license? I suspect that we're already seeing a shift in the West. The scale of the operation is one element of that. The statements by Israeli officials adds great concern. We've had ministers talk about a nuclear option. We've had former security officials, current members of parliament, talking about essentially ethnic cleansing. And some actually say that, uh, you know, basically they imply that all Palestinians are legitimate targets. Exactly. So it's not just the extent of the suffering, it's what is the stated intent. Obviously, they're not necessarily the government. But the point is, if you're sitting outside and you're looking at it, you think the potential for this getting much worse is real. And if we don't see a clear, achievable military goal, then adding misery at the cost of a potentially political track, but importantly, regional relations or unrest at home is not worth it. So we'll have to see what the concept of battle of the Israelis is. If it's total war, then expect quite ugly moments, not just on the ground, but politically as well. If the Israelis, under the pressure of the US in particular, but others, define a narrower military strategy, then perhaps the pressure will decrease on Israel. But I'm not optimistic at all. And how much leverage, though, does America actually have? Because they started with this hug them close strategy, the argument being the only leverage they would have with Israel is they showed deep sympathy and then maybe they could whisper in their ear. But if the whispering isn't working, America, is it prepared to get tough with Israel, whatever that means? I mean, the US has done a number of things. The hugging strategy is one element of it. The second one is clear deterrent messages in the region that I think were important. I mean, it did help in Lebanon, Syria, Iran. At the same time, we see local actors taking initiative, so it's not perfect. When it comes to U.S. leverage on the Israeli government, I suspect it's very limited. I mean, first, Netanyahu was never, at the best of times, an easy interlocutor for the U.S. Now that the Israeli society at large is traumatized and some seeking revenge, others looking for a military solution to the Hamas military problem, I mean, there's a wide variety, I suspect that Washington's messages are not going to work. And sadly, it may work only when things become irremediably catastrophic or when, you know, large numbers of Israeli hostages are killed, whether by Israeli bombing unintentionally or by Hamas doing something terrible. At present, I'm not sure the Israeli system is able to clearly see what they're getting into, where we talk a lot about objectives and tactics. We have no sense of a strategy or a political horizon. And unless Israel is able to articulate that, I think they're going to be stuck and the Americans won't have much to work with. But in the long term, I guess somebody has to govern Gaza. Do you have any view of that? I mean, one of the bleakest views is that the Israelis have an intention of essentially clearing all the Palestinians out, forcing them into Egypt. But that doesn't seem like that's going to happen. So who runs Gaza after this? Benjamin Netanyahu gave an interview in which he said that Israel will have to control the security situation in Gaza for the foreseeable future, which prejudices a new type of occupation. Look, the focus on the day after has started almost on day one. 
The problem is, first, does this focus distract us from the here and now? Because there may be no Gaza, essentially, functioning place to rule over. But there'll be people who have to be cared for in one way or another. Well, exactly. But, you know, what kind of infrastructure do you rely on to make what is a harrowing situation for these people a bit better? Because infrastructure today is essentially a Hamas-led one. Is every civil servant in Gaza a Hamas official that needs to be rooted out? Is every judge, every municipality worker, every garbage collector? Reminds me a bit of Iraq, Ex- Bath Party. Exactly. So that's going to be a massive conundrum. The second one is a number of Arab states, which have been quietly approached, say, okay, would you want to contribute to that? Are saying, well, you know, no, we don't want to do Israel's job. We don't want to be in a situation where we're fighting a Hamas insurgency. Hamas has already said that any external force would be seen as an enemy force that would need to be fought. What is the legal framework for that? And importantly, you won't have a transitional authority that is viable and legitimate if you don't have a clear political horizon. No one wants to be in Gaza forever. You have to be in Gaza so that you get to a point where there is a Palestinian state that is then responsible for the well-being of its own people, but also for peaceful relations with Israel next door. And we're nowhere close to having that discussion. So a lot of possible players are very reluctant to get there. Look, I know that policy planners in Washington, in Paris, in Berlin, here and elsewhere are producing papers to that effect. It is fundamentally divorced from the reality on the ground. It is the type of fighting and the extent of the destruction and the extent of the human suffering that will dictate what happens the day after. So it's better to focus on what's happening now and shape it rather than say, okay, let the fighting happen and then we'll see if we can assemble a coalition of the willing for later. Okay, so shape it how? What would you propose? I think the first step is to enunciate, and the Americans are doing it more clearly, what the political horizon is, which is a two-state solution and Gaza as part of that state. So you start by that. Hamas will not like it, just to be clear. Because they don't accept any state of Israel still. They don't. Just, you know, to be clear, Netanyahu does not buy into the two-state solution. Although he's occasionally said he backs it, but basically he doesn't. I mean, just like Hamas at times has alluded to, you know, a more compromising position. I think we don't have that clear-cut commitment. The only people in that space to accept the two-state solution are the weakest of them all, the most relevant today, which are the Palestinian Authority, right? So unless you have that political horizon articulated now by the Americans, by other Westerners, by Arabs and so on, I don't see how you make any progress. It is basically about managing the cycles of violence and the lull between them. The second thing is the demands from Hamas have to be very clear. Release of hostages, I think when people talk about ceasefire, a ceasefire that is not accompanied by this fundamental step is not viable politically. It won't fly in Israel. I understand that. But other things have to be clearly enunciated from them. Is there any chance Hamas would release the hostages? I don't see it. Probably not. Look, Hamas showed us its ugly face on October 7. So one should not have very high expectations there. At the same time, the problem in all this is that it's not yet clear how central the hostages are to Israeli strategy. No, I mean, it seems to me that Israeli strategy sometimes implicitly seems to say, well, there's nothing we can do about them. Which is sad. 
you know, you look at the pictures, the stories of these hostages, the manner with which they've been snatched. I mean, it's just a horrifying moment. The thing is that releasing civilian hostages is almost a non-negotiable matter. Sadly, the soldiers who were captured on October 7, that's a different story. And for Hamas and others, you won't have the same kind of pressure. But right now, just saying we want to destroy Hamas allows Hamas to basically say it's a fight to the death. Anyway, it's not going to happen. If Hamas is crushed in Gaza, it will continue and it will flourish in refugee camps elsewhere, in the West Bank, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in other places, which is why regional countries want to keep this contained because they understand that we're talking about the 10, 15 year process that's just been started. So maximalist goals have to be moderated with reality. Yeah. I mean, talking about the wider regional picture, it struck me when I've spoken to American policymakers that actually that is their primary concern, that they are worried that ultimately they'll be dragged into a war, possibly a war with Iran. Where do we stand on that? I mean, do you think that danger is still present? I think it's a medium risk, high impact kind of scenario. None of the big players want it. The U.S. doesn't want it. Israel doesn't want it. Hezbollah doesn't want it. Iran doesn't want it. I mean, I I can go on and on. And each of these players is essentially deterred in their own way. And, you know, the fact that Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, gave that speech, a fiery speech in tone, but a de-escalatory one in substance, is quite telling. I don't think the Iranians themselves see this as, I suspect they see it as a likely inconclusive war that is not existential in nature for the regime itself. So it's really about managing it. It's about managing expectations, messaging, and so on. Once it starts, we all know that it could get out of hand very quickly. And just to be clear, there's a bit of fighting everywhere at that moment. It's contained. I mean, the Houthis have fired ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and flew drones towards Israel from Yemen. I mean, this is something that 10 years ago was just not on the table, and now it is a reality. In Iraq and Syria, we're talking about dozens of attacks against American targets that the U.S. is trying not to respond to too forcefully. Lebanon, at this point, probably around 60-plus Hezbollah fighters have been killed there, and probably like around a dozen Israeli soldiers. It's all this tit-for-tat that's happening, but I think fundamentally no one wants to see this explosion. I think the real danger at the moment is West Bank. You know, there's already much greater settler violence against Palestinians, already much more tense situation economically. This has the potential to ignite a much worse situation. And here Jordan is extremely worried. You know, Egypt at least has a buffer. You know, the Sinai is big. They have a full army deployed there. Jordan, it's way too close to home. And here again, I think you run up against the limits of American power because it's something Biden has said quite explicitly couple of times, you know, that what's going on with the settlers on the West Bank is unacceptable, and yet it continues. Yeah, I mean, this crisis has come at the worst possible time for the U.S. It distracts it from what it deems to be more strategic struggles in Ukraine, in the South China Sea, and so on. But in a way, it is a product of American complacency, right? I mean, not just American, I would say Western complacency. For the past couple of years, the narrative in the region was, De-escalation, Saudi, Iran talking to each other, Turkey, UAE calming down, Abraham Accords, let's invest in this tract and let's freeze conflicts. The problem is, you know, I understand the intention. You freeze conflict 
because you hope that over time the drivers of violence will be diffused, uh, will be diluted. In reality, once you freeze them, you no longer pay attention, you don't invest resources, you don't see that as a moment of opportunity, you're distracted, you look at other things, more positive things. Then those conflicts in terms are supercharged and they explode the way they have been, right? I mean, Ukraine is an example, Nagorno-Karabakh is an example, and then this one. I mean, there is still a potential that Syria, Libya, Yemen, I mean, you know, Iraq will ignite again. The Middle East is exhausting, I understand. It demands a kind of attention and resources that Western capitals would prefer to put elsewhere. But the Middle East sits at the door. It's the southern flank of NATO, of the EU, and so on. It's the southern flank that tests Western cohesion, sense of purpose, which have been revitalized by the Ukraine war, but now are again under massive stress. The Saudis and the Iranians, what kind of role do they play? I mean, it was interesting being in Riyadh that the Saudis, despite their sort of upset at what was happening in Gaza, did not seem to abandon the idea of eventual normalization with Israel. And I think, you know, in all those position papers you say are being drawn up in policy planning departments, most of them eventually revolve around trying to solve this Israeli-Palestinian issue as part of some big regional compact in which Saudi Arabia, Israeli normalization is a central bit because the Saudis have the money. Do you think that's a kind of pipe dream? Are the Saudis able, willing to play a role? I think they would be willing to play a role. At the moment, they're not yet drawing proposals. They don't want to be managing this mess. They don't want to be seen as, and, and they're not doing Israel's bidding. Don't forget, I mean, Hamas is, I think, listed as a terror organization by Saudi Arabia. You know, this is due to the struggle of the past decade over the rise of Islamism. They don't have a soft spot for Hamas. But for Saudi that claims now to be a regional but also a global leader, it cannot ignore a crisis in its neighborhood. I suspect the Saudis are still very interested in a deal with Israel, not necessarily because of what they want out of Israel, but what they want out of America. And over time, that crisis may strengthen Saudi's negotiating hand. I think the ask from Israel when it comes to the Palestinians is going to increase significantly. And the ask from the Americans is also going to increase. And by the way, it will help the Saudis say, we were trashed in U.S. Congress over our war in Yemen. And look at what your ally that is getting full support is doing in Gaza. Yes, there are equivalences that one can reject. The point is that it's part of the narratives that are competing on the global stage. But, you know, Saudi sees itself as an architect of this region and will very probably put in the billions. The question is whether Saudi will ever consider, you know, be physically involved there. And I doubt it. Saudi, the UAE and so on, they'll put in the billions. They will still expect the muscle to come from elsewhere. Egypt, Jordan, other states, they're not going to shed blood for the resolution of this sadly intractable conflict. And Iran, which has suddenly now, I mean, never went away, uh, but it's back at the center of everybody's calculations, not just about the nuclear dossier, which was crucial, but about them as a regional actor. Do you think they see this as a moment of advantage or a moment of danger or a bit of both? It's a bit of both. I think Iran certainly is a beneficiary of what's happening. Hamas has emerged as a regional actor that has disrupted the movement towards normalization between Israel and Saudi. That crisis has allowed Iran to say, look at the contradiction of the West that talks about values from morning to evening and then look at the reality. 
it has helped Iran remind everyone that it could escalate or de-escalate, just be nice to us. Iran is a much better place regionally and globally. I mean, since the Ukraine war, Iran has been able to say to Moscow and Beijing, hey, welcome, we've been standing up to the West for 40 years and you were a bit naive about it, but now you see where the lines are drawn. So let's work hard on this alignment. I won't call that an alliance. We're still very far from that, but there is a narrative of unity that's emerging. So Iran feels it has more space to operate. And that, in a way, is going to be the dilemma for the U.S. and Israel. If the hit against Hamas, from their perspective, is too small, then the danger on Iran's part is like, look, with a bit more effort, a bit more patience, a bit more resources, you know, we may achieve that goal. The Mukawama Mumana narrative. What's that? It's resistance and defiance, essentially. If the Israeli response is massive and doesn't discriminate and and so on, then Iran will say, look at how bloody our enemy is. The question is, at what point does the level of humanitarian suffering become such that people look at Iran and Hezbollah and say, hey, guys, you've been telling us for decades that we need to arm up for that day and that day comes and you're not doing anything. We're quite far from it. I think at this point, Hezbollah and Iran are quite happy to let Hamas be the temporary leader of the resistance in the region. So, I mean, I've asked you lots of questions about the years ahead. Just refocusing on the here and now, what do you expect to see in the next two or three weeks? You've said increased casualties, more diplomatic activity, but do you think the overall picture is likely to shift? No, I don't think that in the next couple of weeks we will see any significant qualitative change. I think we'll see an intensification of urban warfare. There are a couple of diplomatic events that will perhaps force some greater discussion and thinking. Uh, The G7, APAC, uh, the Arab League, the ISS Manama Dialogue, you know, all these things will be moments where those discussions will be front and center. But I think the Israelis still want to test their concept of victory. And that will require a few more weeks. They will want to see if the kind of tactics and capabilities they'll deploy in Gaza City can quickly deliver some big gains. So it's still the military clock that's ticking, not yet the diplomatic one. That was Emil Hokayim of the International Institute for Strategic Studies here in London, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Please join me again next week.